evening to you. First John tonight, chapter 4. Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We find ourselves a second time through now in chapter 4 of verse John. Beloved, John says, he's, he's said a lot of hard things in this letter of his, but he keeps repeating that beloved. He loves who he's writing to. He loves the body of Christ. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Here's the reason why. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he gives us a commandment that we are not to believe every spirit. The reason that we're not to believe every spirit is because not every spirit will teach us in this world what is true concerning God and concerning the Lord Jesus. There are three principal spirits at work in the world today, in this fallen world. There is the uh, spirit of the devil or demonic spirits at work. There's the spirit of man, that is the spirit of the flesh, and then there is the Holy Spirit. So God's Holy Spirit isn't the only spirit that is working uh, in this world. Now things get a little more complicated because you would think that maybe the devil, the devil in the flesh would look and say, well, we're just going to, our spirit is just going to be about uh, things that don't have anything to do with God or anything to do with the Bible. And we'll just leave the Bible alone. We'll leave Christians alone. Uh, and we'll just leave that to the Holy Spirit so that we don't confuse the, the issue. That would be nice, wouldn't it? That every single person who got up behind a pulpit like this or got up in any kind of environment and then proceeded to say that they are speaking for God, that we could say, yes, only people that are directed by God's Holy Spirit will uh, endeavor to speak for God. But that's not the way that it is in this world. <laughs> Everybody feels free to speak uh, for God. I mean, there are people that cannot match their socks in the morning. And uh, you ask them what they think of God, and I mean, they'll tell you what he ought to be and he shouldn't be and, and, and what he likes and what he doesn't like, and, and you just listen for about two or three minutes, and it, it begins to dawn on you they're describing themselves. That's the way that it is, isn't it? We're, we're pretty deceived. We want God to be just like us. I mean, it's fairly uh, egotistical, but that's the way the fall is. But anybody will get up and speak about God. And sometimes you hear people who are a little more sophisticated about it just so that they, you know, pull the ace out of the sleeve. They'll say, thus saith the Lord before what they say. Or God says, you know, and then somebody says, thus says the Lord. I mean, you just drop down every guard at all and everything that comes from someone that says, thus saith the Lord or the Lord says, that absolutely has to be, comes from God because that's like the tap, tap, no erases uh, kind of thing that always precedes the, the truth. But it's not true at all. When a person says, thus saith the Lord, or God's Word says, I'm talking about people like me too. Say, God says, or we claim to represent God, and then bring for something forward. Our job as Christians is just beginning. We don't believe it just because someone said, thus saith the Lord, or God's Word says. Remember the Bereans, Acts 17, 11? The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because... Two characteristics of their life. Number one, they received the Word of God with readiness of mind from the Apostle Paul. They were teachable. We always want to be teachable as Christians. But then number two, they then searched the Scriptures to see whether these things were so. They tested the teaching of the Apostle Paul by the Word of God. Why? There's a lot, as he says here in verse 1, because many false prophets have gone out into the world and are claiming to speak for God. Now, nobody, nobody likes to be misrepresented. I mean, one of the irking things in life, isn't it, is that when you say something to somebody or you do something and then it goes around through 17 people and comes back to you and it doesn't represent anything like what you said or what you did. And uh, we have libel laws to protect us from misrepresentation. That's how much we dislike being misrepresented. And, uh, but God, he doesn't, uh, he'll take care of things. He's got laws of his own, trust me. 
Uh, he says, be not many masters, you're going to face the harsher judgment. But anybody and everybody can get up and speak for God, and it doesn't mean that they're speaking for, for God. And, and so, behind all teaching related to God or related to Jesus, there's a spirit. There's a spirit behind that teaching. And, and so, here he's going to tell us how to identify uh, when the Holy Spirit is at work and what is being said uh, related to the Lord. We don't just believe someone because they said they're speaking for, for God. There's only one of those three spirits that's worthy of listening to. So how in the world do we differentiate what, what is of the devil, what is of the flesh, and, and what is of, of the Holy Spirit? So there's so many false prophets out there speaking in the world. So he tells us there in in verse 1, he said, but test the spirits. We're to test the spirits. Now, that word test is an interesting one in the original language. It means to check out, but not just check out. It means to check out by a pattern or a standard that never changes. What never changes in the world? The Word of God. That's the pattern. And, the, and all teaching and all thus saith the Lord's and all that kind of thing is to be tested by the Word of God. Again, I include myself in that. It ought to be tested, what it is that, that I'm saying. Yes, we're to be loving, but, but it is not a loving thing to tolerate false teachers and false spirits. This isn't loving at all. So John tells us now how to differentiate between uh, what spirit is speaking. Verse 2, by this you know, so there's a way we can know what spirit's at work or where the Holy Spirit is working. By this you know the Spirit of God where he's, he's speaking, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And, and so, uh, let's go a little further, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist. It isn't the Antichrist. The Antichrist is coming one day, but he's not here yet, but his spirit's already here. The demonic realm, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. And so the test number one, defense number one against being deceived as a Christian by uh, false teachers and false prophets and, and all is to uh, listen to what they have to say and, and test everything that they have to say about Jesus. And, and, and to, by, we test them, number one, by what they teach concerning Jesus. And is what they teach concerning Jesus biblical? And, and that's the most important thing. What do they say about Jesus? Everybody talks about Jesus. Everybody uses his name and uses all these different kind of, of things. But what do they say about him? And I remember when, in, uh, uh, when I was a relatively new Christian and I remember my early conversations with Jehovah Witnesses on my doorstep. I mean, I'd talk about the 144,000, and I'd talk about the millennial reign, and, and I'd talk about whether the thousand-year reign is going to be the same earth right here that's cursed as it is now because of weeds in the soil, and I could prove out of Peter's first epistle that, and I mean, I could do all these things. And after a while, you know, you, you go from this verse to this verse to that verse to this to here, and over and around and through and the whole, and you get done and, and nothing's been accomplished. And now I always go straight to, what are you telling me about Jesus? What, and then let me show you what I understand the Bible to say here about, about Him. And, and, then, and then you discover that so often what they're teaching, uh, the Jesus that they're talking about, and then the Jesus that the Bible speaks of, two entirely different things. And so some of these false groups, they teach that Jesus... I mean, imagine this. They teach that He's the brother of Lucifer, an angel. Some of them teach that he's a, he, he's a great man or a great example or a great teacher, a great prophet, but that's all that, that He is. And the Mormons are very, very good at this too on, on things where you can talk to a Mormon, you talk about born again, talk about uh, being a Christian, you talk about salvation, you talk about redemption. They shake their head, not all the way through the whole thing. But what those words mean to them and what they mean to you and what they're defined as in the Bible, two entirely 
different things. And sometimes you've got to sift through a, a little bit uh, of, of that. And, and so what do they have to say about Jesus? And he says, every spirit that confesses, again, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Now when he says every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, he means that, that, uh, that the, if, if a person confesses that, among other things concerning Jesus, then, uh, then you can say that it's accurate. I had, I had a, a Christian friend uh, years ago. I've had so many friends in life. And, uh, but anyway, uh, knew him quite a few years ago, and he was a good brother. But he, he would use this verse, and I remember one time uh, his son was very, very far away from the Lord and all, and, and he went up to him and, and, and he said to his son, he said, do you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? He said, yeah. All right, he's of God, he's born again. That's not what it's saying. It, he, he's saying that the, that the Holy Spirit testifies to this concerning Jesus, but among all of the other things that, that the Bible says uh, about about Jesus. And so, Jesus here, the, where the Holy Spirit is at work, there will be that confession, among other things, that He has come in the flesh. Now, what uh, John is dealing with here is that there was a sect among uh, the false teachers in that day that was teaching that Jesus was a phantom, that He uh, did not possess a true body and, uh, or a physical body. And, and so that when he would walk on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, you would look down and there'd be no footprints. And this, this kind of stuff was floating around and, and all. And there were reasons for it that I'm not going to get into it now. And John comes against it and says, listen, no one that's of the Spirit is going to teach that concerning Jesus. Jesus came in uh, the flesh when, when he came in, in a human uh, body and anyone that says anything other than that is not of of uh, God. And so, what does it? And, and we can take this and apply it uh, broadly uh, to to Jesus and and, uh, and concerning any false teaching regarding Jesus. Those that declare that he, again he's just a great man or he's a great example or he's a great model or great prophet or these kinds of things, and you look and say, but what does the Bible say? about him. Those things are false, then this is the spirit of Antichrist. Any voice that denies the truth about Christ is not of the Holy Spirit, but it's worse than, worse than that. He says it is Antichrist, it is demonic. Even if they claim to be Christians, or even if they claim to be teaching from the Bible. Now notice in, in verse 4, so the test number one, protection against false teachers, is to take everything that they're teaching and test it by what is revealed to us in the Word of God, what the Bible teaches, thus what the Holy Spirit declares concerning Jesus. Now protection number two, or defense number two here, is the witness of the Holy Spirit, verse 4. He said, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, false teachers. There is no reason for a born-again Christian, a child of God, to ever, ever be deceived or to be drawn into what is false. And the reason is, is that we have overcome them, these demonic teachers, the, beam, the, the devil who is behind all of that, because he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Now, that's a wonderful verse, isn't it? He that is in us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he that is in the world. And he that is in the world refers uh, to the devil. Now notice he doesn't say greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world and in you. doesn't say that. The Holy Spirit possesses our lives. He indwells our lives. That's what the spiritual birth was about. And the devil operates outside of the lives of, of Christians. He cannot come into the life of a Christian. 
So he's drawing two great categories. There is this one entity in in the world which are Christians that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is greater than the one who rules all of the rest of the world. There is no admixture in in this. And this is is, uh, 1 John 4.4 and this has well been said, I think, for for the purposes of memory that every once in a while you've got to hit the devil with a 4 by 4 Hit him with this verse. It's great in spiritual warfare. Just to remind yourself, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The devil must always work from the outside against a Christian. He cannot come inside of a Christian. He can oppress mightily from the outside, but he cannot possess and come into uh, a Christian. Now, when I was uh, growing up, one of the formative experiences of my childhood was Saturday morning cartoons. And uh, uh, remember Foghorn, Leghorn? And uh, I mean, they'd show all these other ones, and you just, it was a good Saturday that they showed one of those. And remember, he was looking for a chicken hawk. This chicken hawk is, you know, looking for chicken and all. And he'd go over and he'd, he'd pick that, that dog and be sleeping there, wouldn't he? He'd take that big old two-by-four or four-by-four and he'd just thump that dog and walk away. That's the picture that always comes into my mind. I'm sorry to plant it in your mind, but in in 4-4 on things. If he's going to come and he's going to mess with you, don't talk to him or any of that kind of stuff, but remember this passage, greater is he that is in me, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. And I remember, again, early in my... Uh, Christian life. Everything of any value happened early uh, in my Christian life. But I remember uh, in this church that I started walking with the Lord in, in uh, the Calvary Chapel in Napa. There were a group of us that were deacons together. We had, and, and this fellow had become a deacon, I think at the same, on the same day that I had become a deacon, maybe a little bit earlier than that. So I wanted you to know I was a deacon at a former church. But, so, and, then, and then one day, he's not around anymore. And uh, I said, what ha- whatever happened to so-and-so on, on this? And I think by this time we had kind of started coming over here and, and everything like that, so it was easy to lose track of people. I said, well, he's, he's gone into the whole deliverance thing now, casting demons out of, out of Christians and, and that whole deal. So really... And I was talking to another person who was very, very instrumental in my early Christian life, from that same church who had gone into the same thing. And I asked him, I said, could you show me, please, just one single place in the Bible of, of a demon-possessed Christian? If, and there's, there's whole denominations, whole churches built upon the deliverance ministry of casting demons out of Christians. And, I, and this thing was just huge at that time. It's ongoing, but it was really big back then. And I said, if this thing is so big and is to be such a dominant focus of Christians and the body of Christ and every service that we go to, then surely Jesus addressed it in the gospel. Surely we see Christians being delivered of demons in the book of Acts, and we ought to see gigantic amounts of instruction on how to do it in the epistles. Would you show me one place? And they said, well, you know, there was that that woman in Luke chapter 13 that had that spirit of infirmity for 18 years and she was in the synagogue and Jesus came in and and, uh, he took in and uh, delivered her of, of her infirmity. And when they confronted her, uh, confronted him related to doing this healing and all on, on the Sabbath day, Jesus rebuked him and, and said, And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? I said, She's not a Christian. She's a daughter of Abraham. You've got a Jewish woman in a synagogue. I mean, every time we open up the doors of this church, I mean, there's no test that you go through to determine that every single person that walks into the room is a Christian. All kinds of people walk into religious establishments. But the real big problem with that is that Jesus has not died upon the cross, been buried, and rose again on the third day. No one is a Christian until the other side of that event. 
So that's, that is an invalid uh, 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 example of, of this whole thing that you're giving your life to. And, and, I, and I hold to it to this, to this same day. You will not find in the Gospels anywhere practiced in the book of Acts, no instruction on it in any of the epistles, even one Christian being demon-possessed and needing to be delivered of that demon possession. So don't, it's one less thing to worry about. <laughs> he can be bad enough dealing from the outside. I don't have to wonder whether he's crept in on things. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So the Holy Spirit protects us from being deceived by false teachers. And then notice defense number three in verse five. They, speaking of the false teachers, are of the world, and therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. And then we, and John is writing here speaking of the apostles, but it applies to us also. He says, we are of God, and he who knows God hears us. But he who does not know God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The third defense against deception is to test all teaching by the Apostles' Doctrine, by the New Testament, the teaching of the Word of God. And he who knows God will listen to what the Apostles have to say. A beautiful verse on this, for those of you taking notes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, in, in terms of the authority and the inspiration of the teaching of the apostles, Paul wrote, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So verse 6 is speaking of the apostles and their doctrine, and again, it applies to, to us when we declare the same message. Now he says, uh, concerning the teaching of the false teachers there in, uh, in verse 5, and, and as, as he speaks about it, he says, the world listens to them because uh, it likes them. It likes what the false teachers were saying. And, and so here you have these false teachers going easy on sin and repentance and no necessity of being born again, no narrow way, no one way, none of this kind of stuff. And so these false teachers, they're not confronting people with their sin. They're not calling people to, to repentance. And, and they, they, they don't take and smite man's self-righteousness and these kinds of things and tell them to leave that and, and it's filthy rags in the eyes of, of God and, and these things. So it's, these are just... Uh, positive spiritual pep talks that are going on by, by these, these teachers. And, and in that, they're essentially like everything else in the world. It's all man-centered except it's in, in religious garb. And without a doubt, the following, uh, the, the numbers of people that were following these false teachers probably very, very large. And so he encourages them, you know, forget about all of that. Don't worry about how big their, their following is. You just stick with the Word of God. And, and he who hears, verse 6 once again, he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. Now, well, you say, well, that's kind of arrogant. No, it's true. It's true. The Apostles' doctrine and what was spoken, the person that hears it, and, and recognizes that to be truth. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in, in their life. And, and, and that's a person that's, that's of God. Sometimes you can get discouraged because, and I think this was probably happening on that day too, because people were flocking, you know, by the zillions to these false teachers and all, and, and then those that are staying faithful to the truth, they can look at it and, and say, wow, we, we better change our message. We better start to minimize some of these harder things and stuff like that. It looks like it's working for them. We'll just preach half a gospel and we'll just stay away from controversial passages and all that kind of stuff. And that pressure has been on leaders of the church for 2,000 years and exists even to this, to this day. If we consider, the temptation is great, if we consider the success of the church uh, to be based solely upon numbers or the size of 
of, of the following. And that's not what makes any one of us successful, but certainly doesn't make a pastor successful in the eyes of God. When we stand before the Lord one day, um, all he's going, the, the greatest thing that we can ever hear from his lips are, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It doesn't say good and uh, you had a church of X millions of people or something like that. We're going to be rewarded for doing good, being obedient to his word, and then being faithful to what he called us uh, to do. And it protects us from being pulled away by all of these other kind of things. And, and I, I, to me, it's, it's something that God just um, etched in me early in my Christian life on, on, on all of that. And, and partly it was because when Karen and I, uh, when I, uh, she got saved and when I was trying to figure out whether I was saved or not saved or something, but I, I said, you know, we got to go, I'm going back to church. I didn't even invite her. I'm going back to church. I know, so I know the truth is there, and not not where I've been living for the last few years. And uh, the first two or three churches that we went to, man, I mean, you could have put what was taught in a thimble on on things. And here, I mean, I'm I'm in in some ways not outwardly. I've got it all together, but inwardly, <laughs> wow. It's like a spontaneous combustion there. But I mean, but at that time, I mean, I know I've got it all together now. <laughs> but I mean, at that time, looking, everything was final. But inside, man, my margins were fine. My margins were too fine to be safe. And I needed to walk into a church that was going to... I didn't need a censor. I didn't need anyone to keep from me what they thought I wouldn't accept or would offend me or any of those things. I just needed someone to tell me the truth. And what I do with the truth, that's my business. But your responsibility is to deliver that to me. And then the Lord used some things to walk me into a, a, a Calvary Chapel there in Napa. And this guy was just laying it down one verse at a time. Boom, boom, boom. You can take it or leave it. But that's the truth of God's Word. And I said, all right, this is, this is, what, I can, this is what I can accept. And I, I, I personally would rather have a church of ten people that are like that, that just say, what does God's Word say? And, and that's the deal, and we don't want a song and a dance and all those kinds of things than a church of 10,000 that's been, been built up in this other way. And, of course, I, we're very, very blessed here because we've got many times more than 10. There's hundreds that attend this church with that kind of an attitude. But I look at people in, in Modesto, California, and, and, and I look and I say, as, as long as we're waiting for the Lord's return, and as long as I fill this pulpit, I want people, no matter where they come from in life, to come here and hear the truth. I know there are a lot of other churches that want to do that too. I'm not being exclusive about that. But, but I can go home and I can put my head on the pillow and I can go to sleep when I know that the truth of God's Word has been delivered to them. And then what they do with it is their own business. But they have a right to have the truth delivered uh, to them. And so our defense against the false teachers and false teaching makes sure that what they uh, say about Jesus and teach about Jesus is the same Jesus described in the Bible. Test, uh, the, uh, protection number two, the inward witness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then number three, test all teaching by the apostles' doctrine, and that will keep us safe in, in a very seductive and uh, deceptive environment. And then he, he moves on to a further evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He returns to this subject of love, and he declares, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now here, here's another story. I'm not doing this intentionally. But I remember maybe the fifth or sixth or whatever it was. You might remember, Karen. But um, I went to, to Calvary Chapel in Napa. And I walked in on the Sunday morning service. And Karen didn't, wasn't there that morning. Maybe something to do with the kids or something like that. But the senior pastor wasn't teaching. One of the assistant pastors, Larry Anderson, who's now the senior pastor at Calvary Chapel, Phelan, California. And he was teaching, you know. He said, oh, no. 
And uh, <laughs> nothing against Larry, but you know, so and uh, and so he he gets up and he began to teach about love, and I never had heard this before. And 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 he talked about the fact that in the Greek language there were many words for love. And in here, in, the, in, the, in English and, and all, we have one word for love, but in the Greek they have three, four, five different words for love. And they all kind of describe, uh, you know, different facets of love. And he talked about eros love, which is a Greek word for love. Talks about that's love on the physical plane. And it's a very conditional love. It's an if love. I love you if. But don't you ever become anything different than that if. Our eros is out the door. That's why a sexual relationship cannot be an adequate foundation for a marriage in and of itself. It's an important part of a marriage. And, and you see that's a problem today with, with sexual immorality before being married. You say, wow, we've just got this great you know, physical relationship and all. It's not a good enough love to hold a marriage together. And God knows that. And then, and then he, he, he talked about the phileo love, the brotherly love. Philadelphia, we get uh, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and talk about a misnamed city. But anyway, that, that's, the, uh, that's the, the phileo, that's love on, on the emotional plane or the, the intellectual plane. And so I love you because. And it's a little higher than the if. It, it's a response to what you are. But again, it's very conditional. If you change those things, then phileo love will abandon you. And then, and then he said, but the word that's used for God's love in the Bible is the word agape. That describes the love that God gives us, brings into our life by the Holy Spirit. And that's the anyway love. That's the love that, 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 is, uh, that it, it, it sticks through anything. And, and that's the love that God loves us with, and then that's the love that He supplies us I came home, and as best as I could, I repeated the sermon to Karen. I was so amazed. But that's what he's talking about here, is he's talking about agape love, the love that God supplies to us, a love that we would not know unless God's Holy Spirit was in us and supplying it to us. And, and so he, he speaks to us here uh, of, of the fact that when a person were, were to love, another call here, to love one another, and this is to differentiate us from all of the false teachers and those who claim to be born again and were, were not, because only a Christian can exhibit this kind of love. The, the false teachers could not provide this kind of love for other members of the body of, of Christ. They couldn't provide that for their, their followers. Now, notice in verse 7, there he says, love is of God. In other words, this agape love has its origin in, in, in God. And he not only says that this love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God, it comes as a result of the spiritual, God, uh, spiritual birth and knows God. So it's an evidence that we've been born again by the Holy Spirit. This, this love is an absence of love is an evidence that I do not know God because God is love. Now the word there for know is our old friend gnosko and it means a knowledge that comes by experience. And, and so, an absence of this love is an evidence that I don't know God. It doesn't mean I'm not going to heaven. It doesn't mean that I'm not born again, necessarily. But, but it means that, that I do not have an intimate, deep, experiential knowledge of, of God. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, love is going to be the evidence of the fact that He has come into our lives. Now, notice what he says um, in verse 8. He who does not love does not know, and that is gnosko, have an experiential knowledge of God. They have tremendous head knowledge about God, but they really don't know the heart of God. And here's the reason. For God is love. That's His nature. That's what He is. God is love. Now, notice in, in the letter that God being love doesn't make him indifferent to or approving of what's false or false teachers or rebuking uh, and exposing false teaching. It doesn't make him indifferent to wickedness or to sin. One of the characteristics of God's agape love is that it always does what is best for the other person. 
And, and sometimes what is best for the other person is a rebuke or being exposed, that kind of, of thing. And so agape love, it's not soft and it's got a backbone. And uh, the love in heaven has a backbone. And, uh, and so this is what he, as he's talking about this here. He, he's talking about the, the fact that even though he is love, he, he will confront us related to, to these things. Now today, uh, so often I think this gets all turned around uh, backwards where people look at God and they say, well, God is too loving to condemn anything. God is too loving to call anything sin. God is too loving to reject you know, the life that I'm living or this, this kind of thing. He'll never condemn any activity of, of man. And, and anyone who does this and, and is saying that you know, God will not condemn anything, He won't say anything hard to people, everything's okay with Him, they get the whole thing backwards. And what they're saying is, is love is God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that love is God. The Bible teaches that God is love. And God is the definition of what true love will look like uh, toward uh, other, other people. And then notice that he goes on in verse 9, and he said, In this the love of God has ma- was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. So God doesn't just talk about love. God has demonstrated His love. And he, in the greatest demonstration of God's love in human history, is the sending of His Son to die on the cross for our sins. And, and so that's how we know that He is love. So, you know, if a person, uh, somebody says, well, you know, I, I know that God is love, and I know that He's loving, and, and God is love, and God is love, and God is love, and you say to that person, uh, how in the world do you know that He is love? You say, He's love. But how do you know He's love? Well, wow, I thought about that. The interesting thing is John gives the child of God an answer to that. And we can say, we know He is love because He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins and to save man from the judgment that our sin is, is due. And so the Christian has proof of it. We can answer, answer the question. And, and I think that it's important too, as he uh, speaks here, uh, let's go a little bit further in this, in, uh, in verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the satisfying payment for our sins. The single great evidence of God's love for me is my bank account how full my gas tank is, how complete my medical coverage is. No. The single great evidence of God's love for me is the cross of Calvary and for you. It's not judged any other way. God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the great demonstration of His love. You know what a relief it is? as a pastor, to go, and, and I don't want to offend anyone, I don't want to create any actors related to this, but to go to a home where someone has died or to go to the hospital where a tremendous crisis is going on in there and, and to walk into that situation and to be greeted by Christians who look at the situation and it has not moved them from their faith in God and their confidence in the love of God for them and for the loved ones that are, that are involved. And it, it, it isn't unusual to walk in and, and all of a sudden, on the basis of some circumstance or whatever, the person begins to doubt the love of God at the world's worst time because of the circumstance. Because we're prone to judge it by the circumstance. Calvary is the evidence the great single evidence in history of God's love uh, for us. Verse 11. Beloved, 
If God so loved us, and my, how He has loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God has loved us in this way, shouldn't we love one another in, in the same way? And then notice verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. That is the Father. He's a spirit. You can't see Him. No one has seen God at any time. Well, how in the world are people going to know what God is like? He said, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. Now here is Jesus. He comes and He is... When Jesus spoke to Philip, He said, if I've been so long with you, Philip, you know that you don't understand these things yet, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so here is Jesus, the great revelation of what the Father is like. Everything He did, everything He spoke was a revelation of what the Father is like. It isn't that, well, that's what Jesus is like, but you know, the Father, He's got a little, you know, He gets a little more upset than Jesus did. No! Everything He did in every situation directed by the Father. And, and so, but where is Jesus today? He's at the right hand of the Father. So how in the world is the world going to see the Father in this world. They can't see Him. Not physically. They see Him through His body. The Holy Spirit inside of our lives. That's why the spiritual birth is necessary. Remember, Jesus spoke with Nicodemus about being born again by the Holy Spirit and, and all. And Jesus spoke about the wind going through the trees and this kind of, of thing. And you can't see the wind, but you know it's real because of the effect that it has upon a tree. So is one who's born of the Spirit. You can't, you, you, nobody saw the Holy Spirit come into my life or into your life. But how do we know it happened? Because changes occurred within our lives. And, and so now God Almighty, by the Holy Spirit, is living inside of us and He expresses Himself now through the body of Christ. Someone has said that... Hold on, what did they say? <laughs> the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that is made visible by the obedience of God's people. That captures it perfectly. Every time we obey God's Word, and, and here in the context of love, or but any area, the kingdom of God, whether we're in line at the post office or we're stuck in traffic on McHenry or whatever the thing might be, and, and the obedience occurs through our life, the kingdom of God becomes visible to the whole world. And the fact that God is alive and that He is real becomes uh, visible too. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful reality. You can't see Him, but you, you see Him through our lives. And, and here He speaks specifically about love. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love has been perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. That's the evidence in our lives. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in Him and He in God. And so one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit at work in our life is going to be this love. And then in verses 14 and 15, He gives the evidence of uh, of the fact that God's Holy Spirit is uh, working in a, in a person's life. The evidence, the confessions of one that's indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 14, uh, number one, he will confess that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's a confession that the Holy Spirit makes. Uh, produces within a human life. A person will say, Jesus is the Savior of the world, not He's one of many of these kinds of things. And then notice in verse um, 15, the second confession that He declares of one who's indwelt by God is that He will declare that Jesus is the Son of God. And in the ancient world, they understood that to call someone the Son of God was to uh, impute deity to Jesus. Remember Jesus when He declared Himself to be the Son of God, the religious leaders took up stones 
And they were going to stone him or threaten to, to do that. And, and they said, we don't stone you because of it, attempt to stone you because of any works that you're doing, but because you declare yourself to be the Son of God, and in doing so you make yourself equal with God. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying uh, about him, himself. And no one who does not confess this as, as representing their firm conviction concerning Jesus has a relationship with God no matter what they say or what they think. If I do not believe Him to be the Savior of the world and believe Him to be the Son of God, that is divine. God the Son and the Son of God, then I, uh, then I have no relationship with God. Now this rolls right back to the teaching of the Jehovah Witnesses. And don't think I'm picking on them, you know, exclusively on it. I just don't want any of you folks picked off on, on the front doorstep on, on any of this. This happens to be my calling to address this. And this is the, one of the big issues that the Jehovah Witnesses do not get because they do not believe that Jesus is divine, that He is God the Son. They believe that He is an angel. And what they don't get is that it wasn't just Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. It, it, if, it, not just anyone could die on the cross and provide forgiveness for our sins. He had to be a lamb without spot and without blemish. And it was only because He was the Son of God and God the Son that His death upon the cross has provided the salvation that it has for us. You can't just redefine Jesus as something else and then say that that something else dying upon the cross can provide us with salvation. We have salvation because the Son of God died on the cross for us. And that's why Jesus, when He spoke to the religious leaders of His day, He said, except you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It's not an angel or a good man or a great example or a great teacher alone that died upon that cross. It was the Son of God died on that cross. God Almighty that died upon that cross for us. That's who we believe has died on the cross for us. And he said, and we have known, verse 16, and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. Now what He's going to talk about as He closes chapter 4 here is that the love of God is never to be used as an excuse to live a sinful life, which is what the false teachers, some of them, were saying. God is too loving. It doesn't matter. He'll blink at all that. It doesn't really matter to Him. He's not really that concerned with sin because love is God. They got the whole thing backward, didn't they? The Bible says God is love. And, and so the, the love of God is never to be used as an excuse to live a sinful life. Instead, John teaches in verse 17, it is to produce a desire to live a life that looks like God. In other words, a life that is loving and a life that is holy. And as we live a life like God by the power of the Holy Spirit, we obey His Word, then we will have boldness or confidence concerning a reward on the day of judgment. And so we are uh, about the Jesus returning and one day standing before Him individually and desiring to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter in. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll make you a ruler over uh, many cities. Enter into the joy of, of the Lord. How do we hear that from, from the Lord? By being obedient to His Word, by living a life like Jesus in this world. And as, as best as we can by the Spirit of God. And as we do that at the end of our life, we can be confident that there is an eternal reward that awaits us at, on, on the day of judgment. Now, in verse 17, so some of you don't lose any sleep tonight, when it talks about the day of judgment, it's not talking about the white throne judgment. 
If you're a Christian here tonight, it's not talking about that there. The white throne judgment is one in which those who have rejected Jesus for the entirety of their life as their Lord and their Savior, that's the white throne judgment. It's unbelievers, and, and, uh, and it is just pure judgment that is meted out there. No Christian will ever be judged at the white throne judgment. But we will stand before God, before Jesus himself, as a judge. And that judgment is called the Bema Seat Judgment. The Bema Seat in the ancient world was where you would come forward, a judgment would be made within a Greek city or that and all, and a reward would then be bestowed upon you. I'm going to stand, I'm not going to stand with the rest of the staff here or the rest of the church or the rest of the city of Modesto or anything. I'm going to stand before the Lord alone one day and I'm going to give an account for my faithfulness to the life that He has called me to, number one, as a Christian, and then number two, that He has called me to in His calling upon my life. And as I have been faithful to that, then I am rewarded for all of eternity. And I don't want to go through eternity with one of those little beanies with a propeller and all of that. I don't know that anybody will get those and all. But there, there, somehow there is an eternal reward associated with our faithfulness and all. And how, and how do we have the confidence today, not just on that day, but today that that's going to be a good day for me by just obeying the Word of God, living the life that look, living a life of obedience to the Word of God, obedience to the Word of God looks like God, and then I can know that's going to be a good day for me. And God wants it to be a good day uh, for, for all of us, uh, doesn't He? And then notice in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because love, uh, fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. A mature understanding of God's love and, and talking about those that have trusted in Jesus for uh, the forgiveness of their sins. A true understanding of of the love of God for me. A true understanding of what was demonstrated on the cross of Calvary removes any fear of God's judgment within my life. Any obedient Christian who is fearful in their relationship with God has no understanding of the greatness of God's love for us. You have done the single greatest thing that you could do to bless His Father's heart by trusting in His Son. It is immeasurable what you have done by putting your faith in the Savior that He has sent. And, and so this, this, uh, when a person really understands the love of God, they're not going to walk in their life as, you know, uh, uh, doubting God's love for them or fearful in their relationship with the Lord. And he says there, fear of God's punishment is a torment. And God doesn't intend that any of us would walk in, in, in torment. An obedient, loving Christian, the Christian that he's just describing here, that the Spirit of God produces as we just walk with him and all, gets to look forward to the Bema seat that day in, in human history. And, and, uh, and so he's, he's not wanting people to, to become fearful in all of this, though he's speaking strongly about these things. To think that God loves me based upon my works or based upon my efforts, that leads me to a relationship with God that's filled with fear and torment. And I think God is, He loves me or He hates me or this or that on the basis of my works, whether I was good today or I wasn't good today or these kinds of things. Notice in verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. Now that word because is an interesting word. What is it? It's a response word. We love Him because He first loved us. Christianity is a response to God's love. I, I, again, I remember early in my Christian life, God saved me. No two ways about it. I was born again on my way to heaven. Didn't doubt that one single bit. But boy, I was going to prove to Him that He made a good choice in saving me. <laughs> 
And so I huffed and I puffed and I worked and I tried and I, you know, rolled up my sleeve and I worked so hard for him and I was going to do and all of this stuff. And, and what I didn't realize is I had a good Protestant work ethic. And I was a, I've been a hardworking person all my life. So what I was going to do is I was going to work hard so that he would love me. I didn't even know what was going on. I didn't even know I was playing that game. It's just everything else in the world operates that way. You do and they respond. God is unique in all of the world and that He has done first and we respond to that. And, and it, it takes guys like me a little bit of time to figure all of that out. And it just about killed me trying to earn His love. And then, I don't know what lights went on, but this was a part of it to realize that the Christian life is a response. I can't earn from Him any more than He's already given me in Christ. And as I look at how blessed I am in Christ, then the logical response, the response of the Holy Spirit within me now is to desire to live obediently to Him in appreciation for all that He's first done for me. Now that's a motivation that can carry you through life. To do good, to earn from Him, you'll last one week, you'll last two weeks, you'll last a month. If you're super strong, you'll last six months. If you're super duper strong and you're a born Pharisee, you'll last two years. But ultimately, you crash and burn under that motivation because it won't hold up. And, and, and God knows it won't hold up. But, but to look and say, and, and look and say, look at what you have done for me. In your Son. And then you have put your Holy Spirit inside of me. And you have changed my life. I can't believe how good you have been to me. Lord, in response to how good you have been to me, I want to obey you today. Would you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit to do that today? And that's a motivation that can last. The book of Ephesians, a beautiful illustration of it. In chapters 1 through 3 of, of the book of Ephesians, it tells us all that we are in Christ Jesus, in Him, in Christ Jesus, in Christ. All of the things that have been provided into our life in Him. All that God has first done for us for three chapters. And it's only at the beginning of the fourth chapter that then Paul writes and he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In other words, he says, now in light of all that Christ has done for you, now let me tell you in chapters 4 through 6 what the proper response to that will look like in a Christian's life. And that's what that chapter is. But so often it gets backwards on things. And you just bring it up here and just pound people. This is what you ought to be. This is what you ought to be. And why aren't you in all of this? Thing? But they don't know what Christ has done for us first. They don't know how good God has been to us. How much He has loved us. The price that He's paid. Who we are. How God has overwhelmed in Jesus our past, our present, our future. How rich we are in Him. And there's nothing to respond to. That's why the teaching of the Word of God is so important. And then I realize, wow, in light of all that He's done for me, I want to be what He's called me to be. And again, that's the motivation that can last. And John under, understood that. We love Him, verse 19. One of the most important verses in the New Testament. Because He first loved us. He loved us before we tried to, well, when we were unlovely. <laughs> if, if He could love us at our worst, right when you wake up in the morning, whew, if He could love us at our worst, I mean, He's cleaned us up a little bit. It has to be a little easier today. No, we love Him because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and He hates His brother, uh, He's a liar. <laughs> what do you mean by that, John? It's just, He's, he's a liar. It, 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 when a, a person who really loves God is going to love his family. And, and otherwise, a person will say, they're, they're saying, I love God, but it's all up in their noggin. They don't really love God. 
If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother uh, also. So again, the importance of love. A genuine love for God will always be demonstrated in a love for the body of Christ. Why? Because God loves the body of Christ. Say, so how can I bless you, Lord? Love my body. Oh, boy. Does that mean I get to talk about them behind everything? All right, I guess that's out. You know, okay. Just love my body. And, and that'll be the evidence that you love me. Because he loves his body, which is who? It's you and me. People like you and me all over the world. And so that's the way we can bless his heart. Let's stand together. And if the worship team would come forward, that'd be great.